Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and faraway locations that I don't always understand. Today, Alberta has a new premier. With calls for Albertan sovereignty and jabs at the federal government coming left and right, why does everyone hate the federal government so much? And Canada's complicated diplomatic response to the Iranian protests. Let's talk international relations. Joining me this week, we have our eyes and ears in Wild Rose country, Catherine Grakowski, reporter for Alberta Today. Hello. Hello. Things are really wild in Wild Rose country. The wild, wild west. So true. Uh, We have our pumpkin spice latte lover, David Mosgrab, author and columnist. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I've got uh, a delicious, well, this is Cuban coffee, but you know, I'll tell you, it holds up pretty well too. And last but not least, an overall powerhouse, Emily Nicola, columnist and host of Candleland's Own Detour. So glad to have you. Thank you for having me, Mathieu. All right, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the results of the sixth ballot. Our members have elected a new leader. Please welcome the next Premier of our province, Danielle Smith. On October 6th, Danielle Smith was sworn in as Premier after winning the United Conservative Party leadership race. She won with 53% of the vote. This leadership race came in the wake of former Premier Jason Kenney's resignation from leadership back in May after he'd barely survived a leadership review. What Albertans want is for our province and all provinces to have our rights under the Constitution of Canada protected and respected by an increasingly hostile Ottawa regime that seeks to control every aspect of our lives. Smith has capitalized on a feeling of Western alienation and has promised to implement what she calls the Sovereignty Act. This would allow the Alberta legislature to just ignore federal legislation that they deemed to not be in the province's best interest. I did not realize that the Constitution was something that you could just opt out of wholesale if you didn't feel like participating. And while it's not really clear whether something like the Sovereignty Act would actually hold up in court, and Smith herself has walked back a little bit what she said she was going to do since her win, what does this actually mean for the province of Alberta? Smith has also stirred up controversy after some recent remarks of hers. The community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. She later clarified, saying that she did not intend to trivialize in any way the discrimination faced by minority communities and other persecuted groups both here in Canada and around the world, or to create any false equivalencies to the terrible historical discrimination and persecution suffered by so many minority groups over the last decades and centuries. So, seems like Danielle Smith is off to a great start. Let me turn to our Alberta expert, Catherine. What's going on in Wild Rose Country, and what does Danielle Smith's win mean for Albertans? What is going on indeed? I've been, I've been trying to figure out what the Sovereignty Act actually means. If we can rewind about a year, there was this group called the Fair 
Alberta project, they're launching this fair Alberta strategy. And part of that, they proposed the Sovereignty Act that would have, as you said, allowed the province to say, no, I'm not going to enforce any federal law I don't like. Now, since being sworn into office, uh, Daniel Smith has, has brought forward a bit of a softer version of that, where she says, oh no, um, the Supreme Court reigns supreme, we will listen to that, and it won't be any law, it will only be anything that Alberta deems unconstitutional under sections 92 to 95 of the Constitution. But she also has said the Supreme Court rulings are not double jeopardy, they're not murder trials, so we can relitigate this again. So she wants to fight the carbon tax again. She says there were uh, factors that were not considered in the court case, although the argument she brought forward was the situation in Ukraine right now driving up gas prices, and I don't really know that that speaks to the constitutionality of the carbon tax and the division of powers. But But she wants to go back to court. She wants to fight it in any way outside the court. And she, she described Canada as this unique system where there's a conversation between the, the courts and the parliament. And in some systems, you have parliamentary supremacy. In some places, it's the court. And she says there's this back and forth. But what does it mean for Alberta? Well, she was the leader of the Wild Rose Party. And she is very much the libertarian side. So when the United Conservative Party was formed, it was this big tent coalition of a whole bunch of different types of conservatives. You have your rule of law, bring in the police type, and then you have these libertarians who are like, this is a wild overreach. We like the police are trampling on our rights. And you've always had this tension within this party, but the thing that united them was getting mad at Ottawa, getting mad at Trudeau, getting mad at the NDP. She's come in on this promise to fight the Trudeau-Singh-Notley alliance, the dreaded alliance. What it means is she's taking this party further to the right. Even within the UCP, it's interesting to note that not everyone in the party was even particularly behind this idea. So... We've been talking a lot about the Sovereignty Act. It aims to sort of resist federal laws if people feel like they're not in Alberta's interest. We had the carbon tax flagged as one such law that maybe might not be in the interest of Alberta, at least according to some politicians there. David, what do you make of this campaign for sovereignty, you know, in terms of how it might either impact other provinces or in terms of how it fits into perhaps some of the political history of Alberta and certain other issues maybe that Albertans might feel like they don't have the same views on as people in the rest of Canada? Well, I mean, it's in a way consistent with a long history of political grievances in the West. I mean, that's not new. It's just taken on a particularly toxic and absurd character in the form of the Sovereignty Act. Just basically say, well, we're just not going to obey laws we think are bad for the province. <laughs> and then just kidding, except for maybe we will sometimes. Um, it's farcical. But it's an extension of a very long-held, deeply um, held politics of grievance that, you know, to be entirely honest, is sometimes reasonable and sometimes unreasonable. And it's not just the carbon tax, it's pipeline rules, standards for environmental projects, environmental regulation more broadly, and so on and so forth. This general feeling that uh, Alberta is providing all the value for the country, uh, it's producing the, the essential resources that drive the Canadian economy, 
and that in turn it gets very little and therefore it ought to have more control because it's effectively the engine of the country. Of course, if you apply that logic across the country, uh, then you don't have a country anymore because why should British Columbia play by the rules with timber and fisheries? Why should Atlantic Canada play by the rules with, with fisheries? Why should Quebec play by the rules with, uh, well, anything with mining? You know, why should the territories with mining? Why should Ontario with, uh, you know, mining and resources of its own, so on and so forth? And you don't have a country anymore. So, uh, you know, it's 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 particularly uh, absurd when you when you look at it from that perspective but not new i guess the question is well will this then push other provinces to say well look if alberta gets that kind of deal we want that kind of deal too that's a fundamental risk to the federation but it's also an old risk i mean if you look at the history of the country you're going to find very few times when there isn't a battle between ottawa and the provinces one way or another it started pretty well started in fact before confederation and it's continued you know ever since so it's not, in that sense, new at all. It's just, you know, particularly farcical. You know, historical context is great because it reminds you that however bad things are right now, they're always bad. But that may not be much comfort to folks who are looking for a way out. And, and quite frankly, we don't know just how bad it can get. It certainly could get worse, uh, but it's been worse than this before. And, and presumably at some point it'll be worse than this again. I guess my role in this panel is not to be uplifting, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's very cold comfort to say, well, there have been worse problems in terms of conflict between the provinces and the federal government. There's some level of concern that this could be a tipping point where we like slide into some of those worst problems again. As David mentioned, like Alberta is far from the only province that's had its squabbles with the federal government. And perhaps most famously, Quebec is often at a point of tension with the federal government. So Quebec just re-elected François Legault, who's a conservative sort of soft Quebec sovereigntist calling for more provincial autonomy. And then we've also seen recently in Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe saying that his government is going to table legislation to push back against what he calls federal intrusion. So do you think that we're at a moment where this is becoming a trend in multiple provinces? Do you see things kind of continuing to deteriorate in terms of the relationship between the provinces and the federal government and with provinces really pushing back against this so-called federal intrusion? First of all, that every time in, there's been a moment of crisis in Canadian history, and I'm just, you know, going back first, first of all to, you know, the two world wars and the Great Depression in the 1930s, those have been moments right after where there's been very hard conversations in terms of what is the role of the federal government versus the provinces, what programs should be ran by the federal government. So I feel like it's not necessarily an accident that we're having those conversations now, right after the pandemic, where the federal government played a very big role in our lives, just sending checks directly to uh, thousands and thousands of Canadians. And there's been obviously also a lot of uh, budget spending, a lot of questions that were raised in terms of provincial funding for healthcare and, and the role that the federal government should play into that or not. So I think just putting in context that it's not a coincidence that after a crisis we're having those conversations, I think is the first important point to make. I also think that a lot of the time, and not just in Canada, in the U.S. as well, oftentimes arguments on more decentralized or centralized federation is essentially just a way of having indirectly very strong ideological 
clashes happen. So instead of basically saying up front, I'm going to make, you know, make maybe the, the worst comparison or the best comparison ever. But in the U.S., the oral argument for secession was technically about, you know, independence of the state. It was about slavery, right? What you're seeing at this point in Canada is that there's a pushback basically on the issue of climate change. And there's ways in which provincial, federal issues can be used as a way of basically having a proxy debate. I'm not going to use the word war, but <laughs> proxy, a very strong worded debate on climate change. And the way where we seem to be having that debate, at least in the prairies, uh, seems to be about, you know, provincial, federal legislation. If you had the conservative federal government, I don't think we would be having those same conversations, those same concerns about Alberta sovereignty. It seems that it's just sounds, I don't know, more noble, in my very humble opinion, to talk about sovereignty than to talk about, I disagree with the liberal government and I don't want to follow a liberal leader, essentially. It is also no accident that we were not having those conversations when Stephen Harper was prime minister. And really, I think the most fallacious things that I'm hearing from the West is always trying to draw you know, comparison with, with Quebec. And it's such a different ballgame, such a different conversation. Instead of like going into how they are being conflated sometimes, I'm mostly interested in why. And I think it's very important to ask why is Alberta and somewhat also Saskatchewan obsessed with, you know, what Quebec does differently. I think it's impossible to analyze the discourse about Quebec in the prairies that is a mix of jealousy and spite without talking about francophobia as well in the prairies and the role that it plays. So there's just so much going on in that discourse beyond the just, oh, they're arguing about power. Like there's, in, in some ways, I think the way Quebec is spoken about in the West really speaks to some of the big like cultural debates, you know, divisions that we've had in this country since 200 years. And yeah, once again, there's what people say and what purpose that language serve. And those are two very different questions that need to be, you know, analyzed differently. It's true. I mean, the Western experience is fueled by a grievance politics that often takes forms of group demonization at times or group blame. Our problems are because of X, Y, or Z, and it's fundamentally discriminatory. And that isn't to say that there aren't reasons for the West to be irritated at Ottawa, but the grievance politics that it has adopted is you know, deeply unreasonable and often discriminatory and absolutely fueled by a francophobia that takes different forms, including, well, you know, nobody speaks French here. Why should we care about French, despite the fact that there are millions of francophones, I mean, not just in Quebec, but outside of Quebec, too, who get a, a fairly raw deal in this country, despite being a, you know, a critical part of its history and its present and, and its future. So, you know, that grievance politics is is important to note. And it's important to dive into it even deeper because it's not just a federal interprovincial thing, as Emily suggests. I mean, it takes on different forms as well. That can be, for instance, supporting a convoy, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, I suspect there's a pretty significant overlap between the anti-Ottawa Western folks and a lot of the convoy supporters. It's probably not a perfect circle, but there's no doubt an overlap. And that grievance politics, which is growing in this country, which is deeply toxic, is very dangerous because, again, it's exclusionary and, and toxic, and it points to groups and says they're the ones to blame. They're at fault. Uh, and it's a little bit reminiscent of the culture wars in the United States that have been present here for a long time. It's not like they've just shown up, but, but that are getting worse. 
there is an attempt by the federal government to, to counterbalance, I think, a lot of this by practicing a kind of, you know, semi-quiet federalism. I'm going to do the drill tweet again here for a second. It was my favorite thing to do. But you have to give Stephen Harper some credit, I think, for the way he did federalism. And I think Justin Trudeau has essentially, in many ways, informed at least copied that sort of quiet bilateral federalism where prime ministers decided in the aftermath of the 80s and 90s, we're not going to do mega constitutional rounds. And to the extent possible, we're not going to um, you know, meet with all the premiers at once because we're just going to get into a giant fight and, and the, the provinces are going to hold up the federal government like a gang and we're going to get a bad deal. So what we're going to do is sort of quietly go about trying to achieve bilateral deals on things the provinces might want. You go to one province and say, you want some health care money for this? Do you want some child care? You want some dental care? Let's make a deal. And then you go to the next province and say, well, look, we just struck a deal with Nova Scotia. We just struck a deal with British Columbia. Do you want the deal too? Maybe you do. And maybe if you don't take it, the residents of your province are going to have a problem with that. And let's go on and on and on, checkerboard across the country until you've got yourself you know, a daycare program, for instance, a child care program. And that's sort of working. And it's an attempt at the federal government to recognize that to build a federation, you've got to build it with the provinces, but you can't necessarily do it through mega constitutional rounds. So in some sense, I actually think that federalism is healthier than it has been in the past uh, through these bilateral agreements. And that it's actually probably more stable when you do that than say, you know, meet and do the Charlottetown Accord, which, um, or, you know, or Meech Lake, which you know became a disaster. So I'm trying in that sense to be slightly optimistic that there are actually some green shoots there that are that are encouraging even though there are these deep resentment grievance politics that, that are also running underground that are and, and above ground that are very dangerous. So, I mean, as always, it's sort of uh, complicated, but there is some hope there too. I also am like very hesitant at all times to make too many comparisons between Canadian and U.S. sort of politics, just because I feel like oftentimes when people do it, it's like a little bit lazy. But I do feel like in this case, there's a very obvious parallel of provincial leaders sort of demanding more autonomy and resisting this what they call incursion from the federal government with a sort of like states' rights approach where really the thing that they're upset about is not actually the incursion, uh, but what that incursion has been. And I think that there's been like a very big uptick in people being able to, or I guess like in sort of your average voter, your average person, like feeling really energized by that kind of rhetoric because we've just lived through two years of what some people feel has been like extreme incursion of the federal government onto people's private lives, right? Like during the pandemic, I think people interacted with the federal government maybe more than they ever have before in their lives. And so it's become like this very obvious thing that really like affects people in a way that perhaps it wasn't for everybody before. The most US-like example that I'm thinking of right now of what's happening in Canada is the resistance in the West to the federal buyback program for guns. It's like, we want to keep our guns, therefore we won't necessarily enforce federal law. That is like the most American thing I've seen in Canada in a really long time. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That is a funny example. I also hate it when people are like, Alberta is the Texas of Canada. Like, it just isn't true. It really, I think, again, is kind of like a lazy comparison and also doesn't acknowledge the differences within Alberta, like among people living there. Yeah, absolutely. Not everybody does subscribe to this sort of ideology in Alberta or in Texas, for that matter. We've talked a little bit about just sort of how Danielle Smith has but has been using like the way that the federal government uh, acted during the pandemic as a way to sort of like leverage support for this broadly like anti-federal uh, kind of program of ideology that she has. To what extent do we think the pandemic has like factored into Danielle Smith's return 
to power in Alberta? Because this is not her first time at the rodeo in provincial politics. You're talking about rodeo in Alberta. It's just... Yeah, I didn't even (laughs) intend to do that. (laughs) With Daniel Smith's comments, both during her speech on the election night, as well as um, her inaugural press conference, it was a lot about relitigating COVID. So when using the Sovereignty Act, she brought up examples that didn't actually exist, that weren't proposed, like the federal government coming to jab your children in schools and force these vaccines. And that's where her comments of, this is the most discriminated group I've seen in my lifetime. And it may very well be that for the very first time, people are experiencing what they feel to be discrimination. You know, you can't go into a store. But my goodness, I mean, when I went to school, there were still kids in residential schools in this country. There is violence against so many minority groups up to and including genocide in this country. And you're going to say the ability to not go to the keg for a few months was the worst discrimination that you've seen? Um, Jared Wesley, who is a, a University of Alberta professor, put it really well that there's these majority who want to feel like the persecuted minority, who want to feel like they're slighted, who want to feel like they're wrong. So even though they hold all the power in society, they're feeling like they're powerless. And in, in some in some cases, it's a case where the federal government is saying, oh, you are bad for producing oil that is destroying the planet, but they're not offering solutions. Like, what's my job going to be? They care about their paycheck at the end of the month, right? So... One other way that premiers have tried to circumvent the Constitution before is actually, I guess, the the notwithstanding clause that's baked in. So it's not really circumventing if you're using a clause that's already in there. So we've seen François Legault say that he's going to use the notwithstanding clause. We also saw Doug Ford back in 2018 use the notwithstanding clause to prop up his decision to cut the size of the Toronto City Council in half. So Is the notwithstanding clause something that we're going to see perhaps used more? Does the fact that it exists as this sort of backdoor way to ignore portions of the Constitution mean that, like, we're going to see a weakening of the Constitution in the future? I realize that's a big question. I think it's important to look at why the notwithstanding clause exists. It exists because some provinces did not like the idea of having a charter of human rights and a charter of rights and freedoms, and basically the way for the constitution to be accepted and ratified by everyone but Quebec was to have that clause in there so that it's like, yeah, human rights are important, but they can somewhat be optional. And of course, it's it's a caricature, but not it's not that far off from, from the reality of how that happens. So I guess the reason the clause exists is because what we're seeing now in terms of like trying to opt out from the constitutional regime when, you know, we're trying to push too far on human rights or on climate change or things of that sort is not new. So it was already happening actually in the early 80s when we were having those constitutional rounds. And basically what it's telling me is that the way that this clause is now being tossed around uh, much more liberally um, in these days is that the issue of feeling like when human rights become a pesky annoyance, you want to not have them, hasn't been solved in this country. There's an effect of a butterfly effect of if one person does it, everybody is like, why not us? Um, and so there's th- the fact that it's been more discussed recently 
makes it all the more likely then other provinces will, will jump in and try to use it as well or use similar language, regardless of what an actual sovereignty act in Alberta would look like. I think that's what they're trying to get at as well. There's a lot of parallels between it, the proposed sovereignty act, what would it look like and what people are trying to get at with the notwithstanding clause as well. And those two things are just basically, they've been around in Canada for many decades and basically we're not over having to deal with politicians who want to treat, you know, things like human rights as something uh, something that's optional and have that debate instead about being about fr- provincial, you know, provincial autonomy and that being the, the pretext under which they're questioning the relevance of having human rights being applied to their legislation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Honorable Speaker, point of order. It is wildly unparliamentary to refer to the presence or absence of a member. And yet that is what Daniel Smith did in her news conference. Former Premier Jason Kenney said there would be an orderly transition of power. And so we're asking, okay, well, what does that transition look like? She said, Jason has not returned my phone calls. Basically, he is ghosting the new premier. But I would argue it is because he was fulfilling other duties by calling Toronto and calling Vancouver. Alberta is calling. He was just trying to get you all to move to Alberta. So leave Jason alone. Not a point of order, but a ghosting story for spooky season. Very interesting. Point of order? Yes, David. What's your point of order? I'm going to talk about the seasons some more. I'm just going to be the person that talks about seasons. I have to talk about politics all day, every day for work. So it's nice to have a point of order that's about something important, which is to say season pushing. Now, I am what's known as a season pusher, especially in the fall and the winter. I like the feeling of a nice cozy fall, a nice holiday season winter. But we have to have some limits, don't we? The first week of October is too early for Christmas decorations and holiday decorations. And I'm not coming at this as a cultural critique. I'm not coming at this as an AM radio host. I'm coming at this as an anti-capitalist. The purpose of season pushing by retailers is to get us to consume more stuff. And quite frankly, it's disrespectful to Halloween that capitalists are forcing Christmas on us in October. So I'm calling on all good 
residents, citizens, activists, individuals, people who care, to push back against creeping Christmas, creeping holiday season, so that I can enjoy my pumpkin spice lattes a little bit longer. Because we don't need that pressure right now. we got other things going on. Let us enjoy our pumpkin spice lattes, our pumpkin scones, our spooky beer, our horror movies. And then we can do Christmas and the holiday season when it's meant to happen, which is to say November. Not a point of order, but I'm so glad that we have provided a safe space for you to talk about the seasons, and I look forward to hearing dispatches from the front uh, in your participation in the war on Christmas. Hi, <laughs> comrade. That was excellent, David. Honorable speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, I mean, what's your point of order? All of us, I think, both in the English and more French-speaking Canada have been pushing for, to have more Canadian content on Netflix and other online platforms, and we're all happy for it. I just didn't foresee that um, it would trigger another uh, war of, of words. Uh, I don't know if you've been following speaker, but things are, are getting ugly in Quebec right now over a series that you can now all enjoy actually on Netflix called Emily in English, the exact way I spell my name, or the Fille de Caleb. And it's actually that series based on the book is the reason I'm called Emily. Like it was such a f- cultural phenomenon in the late 80s and the early 90s that like basically everyone my age is named Emily in Quebec and so you can watch the series now on Netflix but you cannot watch the episode two of the first season because there was a blackface in that episode when they were essentially depicting uh, people doing an nativity scene and one of the actors is, is doing one of the kings that, that went to visit baby Jesus and they put him in blackface and that's not passing. So Netflix has withdrawn that episode and everybody in Quebec is really, really outraged about that. That's what we're talking about all week. I don't know how many columns there's been <laughs> written in Quebec about the fact that Netflix withdrew that episode. You can still watch it in full on Radio Canada's online platform 2.TV. They just put a war at the beginning of the episode instead of redrawing it totally. But just that different approach is just triggering so much debate that we're kind of losing the point of just putting more CanCon on Netflix. So my point of order is just can we just like not behave so badly when Netflix does want to put Canadian content on so that they won't actually like do it ever again after that'd be great <laughs> so so more more Canadian content on, on platforms and just like yeah I do think some sort of a, a warning just the way that Walt Disney has been doing it for all of its like so many racist shows that add on they, they're still all on they just have warnings maybe that would be a great policy as well for Netflix from for moving forward as well not a point of order but shocking to me that the CBC is actually like the less censorious uh, platform oh no Radio Canada is not CBC right <laughs> very different <laughs> very different thing <laughs> very different thing fair enough I guess maybe it shouldn't be surprising this is why I need to listen to more Quebec news <laughs> thank you for that well go watch Emily the, the show on Netflix it's actually quite interesting Demonstrators around the world are protesting today, denouncing Iran over the death of a young woman, Masa Amini, and against compulsory headscarves and the so-called morality police. Thousands of protesters gathered just north of Toronto. Thousands more gathered across Canada in cities like Winnipeg and Montreal. To the strong, resilient and proud Iranian-Canadian community, We hear your voices. We heard your calls for action. That is why today we're using the most powerful 
tools at our disposal to crack down on this brutal regime and the thousands upon thousands of individuals responsible for its heinous behavior. There's been a long history of protests and uprising in Iran with glimmers of hope for change and reform swiftly dashed away pretty much every time. The most recent protests focusing on women's rights and pushing back against the morality police have garnered international attention and prompted the Canadian government to act. The government recently announced new measures in responding to these protests. The measures are somewhat complex, but I will try and explain them as best as I can. Trudeau has basically said that the Canadian government will be pursuing a list of individuals uh, through targeted sanctions from the Iranian regime, including members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or the IRGC. So the IRGC is essentially the domestic arm of the Iranian armed forces. What this means is that the top 50% of leadership in the IRGC, about 10,000 people, will be on the receiving end of targeted sanctions and will be barred from coming to Canada for life and may also be subject to property seizures and things like that. Trudeau has also said that the Canadian government intends to massively expand targeted sanctions. And last but not least, the government has implemented $76 million to, once again, strengthen Canada's capacity to implement sanctions. The government has faced pressure to list the IRGC as a terrorist entity under the criminal code, uh, but they have not done so as of the time of recording. However, they did call the Islamic Republic a terrorist regime and the IRGC a terrorist organization. They just haven't actually designated them as such officially. While the government says that they've used all the tools in their toolbox, it seems like they've still held some back. How are these measures actually measuring up? And what is Canada doing in response to these protests? And what makes this action of imposing sanctions against Iran different from other times where Canada has imposed sanctions against Iran before? Emily, do these kinds of sanctions of targeting specific officials in a regime have any impact? I'm going to be mean, okay, but I feel like we're still waiting to see the impact of the measures that Canada has put in place against Russia. <laughs> so those have been like so much broadcasted over the last year. And when, now that we're learning that some of them haven't actually been implemented, I think it's a little bit worrisome. But yeah, no, in general, sanctions do matter. What's tricky also in implementing them is, is to make sure that you're actually targeting, you know, the people at the top, the people in position of power. And within the context of that specific organization in Iran, I'm not going to pretend I'm the most well-versed expert on Iranian politics. But one thing I do know is that there's a lot, a lot of members of that organization and some of them join voluntarily. And there's also a lot of people who are basically conscripted or forced to to join. So having sanctions on that group is very tricky. And the U.S. is trying it. And it's actually having very complicated effects on families, splitting families, forcing some, some family members to not be able to come to the U.S. while the actual bad guys usually don't want to come live in the U.S. There's very tricky issues of application in the case of Iran specifically in terms of what those sanctions should be and how they should be applied. And because we live in a world where we don't like nuances and we want to just be like against evil and for good, I find it hard to, first of all, have the space to take the time to inform the general Canadian public on what's going on in Iran so that people have enough context to be able to understand the situation. And second of all, be able to have conversations about policy where, where we just are not caring about symbols and what it makes us look like, but actually care about their impact and make sure they're actually 
having the impact that we want them to have. So, Catherine, Canada has the second largest Iranian diaspora community in the world, with many Iranians living in and around Toronto and also living in and around Vancouver. And we've seen massive protests from Canadians in the Iranian diaspora, with tens of thousands of people turning out to a protest in Richmond Hill in support of the protesters in Iran. So how have the recent protests changed the conversation about Iran in Canada, both among the diaspora and also just among Canadians in general? I think back to January 2020 when Flight 752 was downed. And I wonder why it has taken so long for the federal liberals to do what they've been asked of. Like, this is clearly a, a regime that does not respect human rights. It's such a cliche to say these things are complicated, but they're complicated. I mean, there are several layers of, of politics, domestic and international, both you know, between us and Iran and us and our allies. We, we live in a global community. We act in a global community. And uh, we have to understand what our goals are before we proceed. And I think the example of of designating the guards as a terrorist entity is a good example of that. Um, you know, the visceral response might be, well, of course you do. And that's certainly what the conservatives have been saying. The counter response is, as uh, Emily noted, what are the consequences of that? And do you harm innocent people when you do that? And there's a parallel there with other histories of sanctions, uh, sanctions on Iraq, for instance, that uh, ended up doing far more harm to innocent people than, than to those at the top. You have to understand your goals. You know, having a sort of lust for revenge or for punishment isn't necessarily productive. And so that's difficult to hear. And I, if I was on the other end of it as a, as a victim, for instance, I think I would be deeply frustrated at the lack of aggressive responses. But, you know, we have to decide what our goals are ultimately. And we have to do so in a way that also isn't patronizing. We have a tendency in this country to, to be moralistic and to sort of preach the values of a liberal democracy and inclusion while not exactly practicing them ourselves here, not just with our history of, say, indigenous genocide and slavery, racism, and so on, but our present of exclusion, of marginalization, of colonialism, and so forth. And if we act without being reflective, we just reproduce that same dynamic. And we're doing that a little bit uh, with Iran, saying, well, you know, we're going to stand up and show them how to to govern and we're going to liberate their women. While here, uh, the, the dialogue around Francis the hijab is deeply parochial as well. And we don't we have a tendency to use these moments to look outward and blame and then absolve ourselves of our own domestic shortcomings and sins. And so it, it, as much as it might not be palatable to hear that we should at times take a moment to reflect, have a discussion about who we want to be and how we want to model our, the behavior and how what our strategic goals are, it's probably important to do that. The one problem, and I'll close on this point, is we tend to take our time and end up doing nothing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the tension between the way that Canadians are responding to these protests in Iran and saying we need to support, you know, the full bodily autonomy of women with the fact that in Quebec, you know, there are laws on the books that are restricting that autonomy when women want to wear the veil. And, you know, politicians here are kind of afraid to touch it. Like, why is it that some of the same politicians that are so quick to at least, like, make these overtures of supporting these protests in Iran that are all about bodily autonomy, why will they not say anything, you know, when there are sort of similar 
debates going in the other direction here. You're getting in the heart of why it's been so hard to talk about the protests in Iran from Canada, and I'd say in general from North America as well. I'd say, first of all, on the progressive side of the spectrum, there's kind of a trauma of the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and just how protests against a human rights abusive regimes in this region can be then used as a way to just go and take over. I think there's a lot of hesitancy to, in terms of like having progressive voices that are obviously in solidarity with feminist movement in Iran, protesting for their rights and for their bodily autonomy to have a right to exist and to not be murdered uh, because they're showing their hair. Like to be in solidarity with that, there is a danger in the West to be instrumentalized by more hawkish uh, policy when you do it. There's one level of hesitation, I feel, there. The other thing that I'm seeing is it is actually the reverse of what you said. Like I saw the minute the protest started in Iran, I saw a lot of voices. uh, And maybe that's just my own echo chamber or the fact that I'm so vested in Quebec media. But I saw a lot of reactions mostly coming from people who are not feminist at all, very much like the the voices that have been supporting Bill 21 in Quebec who are just not interested about Iran at all. For the most part, they are just using that as a way to make points about how Islam needs to be criticized. Political Islam is, you know, something that they've been telling us us all along is a danger. And so to then have people point the fingers, because that's what's been happening, right? Point the fingers at people who have been against Bill 21 and be like, aha, why are you so silent on Iran? And so the dynamics that I've been seeing is a little bit like when there's a terrorist attack somewhere, all Muslims have to, you know, condemn that that attack and say that, you know, they, they're not for that. There's been a kind of a finger pointing, I feel, in the last weeks of just like all you pesky intersectional feminists need to now like prove that you're in solidarity with women in Iran, which is like, obviously we are. But I feel like the fact that there is the, this kind of, aha, why are you so silent, actually makes people want to maybe not say as much just to also make the point that they're not going to be directed about what they want to speak about by those voices. So basically what I'm saying is that all those dynamics are playing over the actual protesters, uh, the actual women whose uh, human rights are being violated in Iran. And so there is basically symbolic debates piling up on their backs. And it feels like from a Canadian point of view, very hard to actually get at what they're going through and be in solidarity with them without that being used or instrumentalized one way or another by the different political forces of this country and I would say this this continent. The people who will be the most well-versed and the more likely to be able to avoid all those traps will be people who are of Iranian origins themselves for the most part. And those are the only people that, frankly, I'm interested in listening to you know, on this conflict. Those are the voices that, of course, they exist in Canadian media, but there's not enough of them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's like we can draw parallels between two situations. And like, obviously, there's like a, a certain kind of tension that arises between the two situations. But they are, as you point out, like completely about different things, pushing in different directions. 
there is like a lot that needs to be said about the government in Iran for a long time, as you mentioned, like Iranians have been talking about it to the extent that they can. Of course, like with the sort of caveat that a lot of people even in diaspora communities are hesitant to like critique the regime too much because they've been like the regime has been known to actually target like dissidents abroad if they become too influential or too powerful. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of finger pointing kind of in Canada, uh, specifically directed towards the Trudeau government, that they haven't been like doing enough to respond to Iran and to respond to these protests. We've seen Pierre Poiliev attending protests and pushing the Trudeau government to do more. And since he's done that, we've actually seen that the government's taken steps to make top members of the IRGC inadmissible. So how effective of a role do you think the opposition has played so far in sort of guiding Canada's response to these protests? Well, I think shaming him worked. They are using that hammer that to say, just do something, right? We have a tendency to want to look at countries that behave like this to make them pariah states, or to potentially use this as a pretext to force a system of government on them. I'm a fundamental believer in self-governance and the right of individuals to choose how they wish to live. So I certainly don't think that this is a moment where we should be encouraging a, a kind of unreflective politics that could end up making a wretched mess. And I also, again, will reiterate, I think it's a great time to take what we're saying about foreign states and apply it to ourselves and hold ourselves to that standard as well. Um, So, you know, this is why I'm not a politician, though, because at the end of the day, politicians have to make a decision and do something or not. It's easy for us to talk. Politicians have to make decisions. right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when it's November, and so we can actually start selling Christmas decorations at Costco without David getting upset. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Catherine, where can people find you? They can check out my work at politicstoday.news. Look for that Alberta Today tab. Or you can find me on Twitter at C. Grukowski. David? I'm David Moscow. You can find me at Costco shopping for Christmas decorations in uh, October. No, you can find me on Twitter at David underscore Mossgraf or in the Washington Post and Jacobin on a couple of podcasts wherever fine thoughts are sold. And Emily, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter as well. Emily, just like in the Netflix show, (laughs) underscore NI. And they can also find me in Le Devoir and in the Montreal Gazette. Of course, people can also find me on Detour on Canaland's main field and we have our own feed now as well. In the 2007 film adaptation of Marjane Satrapi's graphic novel Persepolis, Catherine Deneuve voices Marjane's mother in both the English and French versions. Perhaps more surprisingly, though, apparently Iggy Pop voices Marjane's uncle Anouche in the English release. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azrie and Tristan Capacchione. Our production coordinator is André Prue. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening. 